You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, leveling up your money and investing with Erin Lowry. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. Very, very important and special announcement. So I opened up Launch Club Doors. That's the membership community for journeyers like yourself who really want to take what they're learning through the podcast and through my content to the next level by actually applying it and getting that support to reach your goals. And so last week, some of you joined me for my free live class where I really broke down creating your launch plan and how to reach all your goals to reach financial independence. And part of that was to open up the doors to the Launch Club officially. So officially launching the Launch Club late last year, you know, I had a real great round of members come through. I call them my OG slash beta members and now wanted to open it up to everyone. So the general public, the general journeyers who wanted to really level up and take their money to the next level. And I'm allowing you that opportunity because the doors are open, but they're not open for long. So if you're listening to this in real time, that means this comes out April 3rd. Well, the doors to the launch club are closing at the end of day, April 4th, because I'm working on such amazing content that I want to be able to focus on delivering that content and all the members in the launch club. And so I'm closing down access for a a while. I'm not sure how long. I'm not sure if it's going to be a few weeks, a few months. But what I do know is that I'm going to be teaching some awesome content. One of them is going to be this awesome course I'm coming out with called the FI course, where I'm going to break down exactly what it is you need to figure out, what you need to do to move to the levels and stages of freedom. So debt freedom, to being secure, to being work flexible, to ultimately being financially independent. So what are the numbers behind that? That's just one of the benefits of joining the Launch Club is this live course that I'm teaching inside. And then on top of it, all the monthly new content such as live classes and Q&As and podcast live after show chats. And for me, the most beneficial thing about this entire Launch Club, other than all the great content, is the community feature. And so this is your chance to join. If you were on the fence, you didn't know, now's your chance to get in. You can go to journeytolaunch.com slash launch club. There you'll see just a recap of all the amazing things you get by joining. And I really hope to see a lot of you guys on the inside. Again, doors are closing at the end of day, April 4th, 2019. So I hope to see you there. And then we're going to work on all this amazing content, focus on the community, focus on the members, and then we'll open up again. But I hope to see you there again at journeytolaunch.com slash launch club. If you are a returning journeyer, if you're new to the episode, to the podcast, welcome. Thank you for listening, tuning in. I think you're going to like it. I particularly am excited to talk to today's guest, Erin Lowry of Broke Millennial. She is awesome. She is just doing what I like seeing done in the personal finance space, which is making finance, personal finance, investing, particularly relatable, you know, making it something we all can understand. And she's doing that through her brand, Broke Millennial. And she has her second book coming out, which is all about investing. And so I'm super excited to talk to Erin all about that. 
Now, I do have a special treat for you guys. So Erin's book, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, it comes out officially on April 9th. So this, if you're listening to this in real time, it's about a week before the book comes out. But I have a special, special treat for you. You can get the opportunity to win a book. And also, if you are local, if you're in New York City, that's where I am. Erin is having a kickoff event for her book and I have a couple tickets and I'm giving some away, giving two tickets away. So you can hear how to win the book and the tickets towards the end of the episode. So stick around. If you want the episode show notes for this episode, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 91. This is episode 91. I'm also going to be reading a Apple podcast review of the week that's going to also be towards the end. And as always, please continue to share this episode, this podcast with your family and friends. I really enjoy when you guys are sharing what you learn from the episode. So make sure you're following me at Journey to Launch on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook so I can see what you're enjoying about the episode, your major takeaways. Now, let's hop into this conversation with Erin. Hey, Journeyers, super excited to bring you this conversation with someone I've been wanting to get on the podcast for a while now. And it just so happens that the stars have aligned because she has a new book coming out and it's the perfect opportunity to talk about her, introduce her to my audience. And her is none other than Erin Lowry of Broke Millennial. She has a blog. She has books now with a S because she's coming out with her second book. And I wanted Erin on the show to talk more about just the work she's doing in the personal finance space and how she's making all of us millennials, even though I'm an older millennial, smarter with our money. So welcome to the podcast, Erin. Thanks for having me. I've been wanting to come on for a while. So it's great to be here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I've learned so much in business from watching you and I love what you've done with your brand and the book, your books. So I wanted you to come on and talk more about that. So can we just go a little bit back to your origin story about how you first got into caring about money to the point where you're writing about it? (laughs) Yes. And that takes us all the way back to 2013, which in real life years, it's not that long ago, but I feel like in blogging years basically makes me ancient because that is how it all started. It all started at brokemillennial.com, which was a blog in its very infancy And the reason I started writing about personal finance, it honestly makes me sound incredibly naive because what you grew up around is normal. And I grew up in a family where we were incredibly comfortable talking about money. My parents didn't argue about money. They talked about it openly. They taught us about money. When I say us, I'm referring to myself and my little sister. And it was just a normal piece of conversation in the house. Now, it wasn't always happy in the sense of, for instance, my parents were very strict on if we wanted anything, we either had to buy it outright or we had to pay for 50%. And that even went all the way to college. So in my family, I knew going into my college decision that I was going to have to be responsible for 50% of my college education. Now, first of all, I'm very fortunate that my parents could even cover the other 50%. But as a bratty 18-year-old, Uh, There was a lot of door slamming, a lot of really crankiness that was going on about the fact that I was going to have to pay for 50%. When I was making my college decision process, a big part of that was colored by the fact that I knew I wanted to move to New York City after I graduated. And I also knew that I was saddled with $50,000, $60,000, $80,000 of student loans. That was going to be very difficult. And the reason I made the college decision that I did was because I got scholarship money. So I knew that I could come out debt free, which was going to be huge. 
Now, fast forward to I'm now living in New York City. I did manage to come out debt free, which enabled me to take a job where in the first year, I actually had to work three different jobs to make a whopping $23,000. But I was, you know, living my dream in New York, originally working in entertainment. And then I pivoted because I needed the almighty health insurance. And I was talking to a friend of mine, and she at the time was working as an executive assistant at Viacom, which is the parent company for VH1, MTV, Nickelodeon, all those companies. And she was just saying how much she hated her job because she, like many people, had moved to New York to be an actress. And I looked at her and I said, you know, I don't get it. At the time, we were 23. I was like, you're 23. You don't have student loans. You don't have kids. You're not married. You don't have debt. And honestly, worst case scenario, you know your parents can and would help you. So why don't you just get some sort of a job that gives you the flexibility to be going out and auditioning and pursuing your dream? And she looked at me and she said, you know, I don't like to think about money. All I do is hope I have enough at the end of the month. And that was my light bulb moment. And I totally recognize how naive that sounds. But here is somebody who came from quite a bit of privilege. And even she was so overwhelmed and stressed out about money. And I thought, I think I can help solve this problem. I always loved writing. And so that's part of the reason I turned to a blog. Also, because podcasting and YouTubing were still in their very, very early days. And I'm not a super technically savvy person. So I didn't really want to get started down that path. But brokenlineal.com started with me just sharing stories. As you can kind of tell already with how I'm telling this story, I'm very narrative in how I like to share. And a lot of it was sharing stories that my parents had taught me and going over the ways in which kind of school of hard knocks taught me about how to handle my money. And that's where the whole broke millennial thing began. A few years later, I had the opportunity to get a book deal. And it's a bit of a long story, but I ended up with a publisher. My publisher is Penguin Random House. I'm with an imprint there. And my first book is all original material. It's not just a reprint of the blog. And it talks about how to get your financial life together. So it's Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By, Get Your Financial Life Together. And it takes you through all of those beginning steps. Because for a lot of us, we were never taught this. So there needed to be some sort of space that you could come and read about it that didn't feel condescending or preachy or militant. And I do like to recognize the shades of gray in a lot of things when it comes to personal finance, because it is a personal journey. Mm-hmm. And your first book did really well. And I think what a lot of people just appreciated about it was the fact that it was so down to earth and it started with like baby steps because I feel like a lot of stuff kind of overpasses what we think as the people in this space as the personal finance educators that we think are simple. But for a lot of people, there aren't like people have different starting points. And so you have to meet people where they are. That's one of the reasons why, you know, your stuff resonates so much with people. And now you have a book. Well, the second kind of the next level is about investing, which I get asked about all the time. So I'm excited that now there's a resource where it's strictly talking about investing. And so it's called Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. So I want to get into some of the concepts because while I wanted you to share your background story, I wanted people also to get some like good tidbits on, all right, I feel more comfortable after listening to this episode about investing and I'm like ready to buy the book. I'm ready to actually like take the next steps. So for most people from your research and doing the book and writing and what you've seen so far, why are most people so afraid of investing? What have been like the most barriers you've seen for people to get started? It just sounds complicated. 
And that's honestly why I wrote the book. And that is the huge barrier. The language that gets used, the way it gets presented to us, it makes it seem like we are not smart enough to do it ourselves or that you have to pay a lot of money or even worse, that you have to have a lot of money in the first place just to get started. And those are all myths that I try to bust in this book. And the reason that investing was the next step in the Broke Millennial series was because after I wrote the first one, there's a very small chapter in book number one about investing. And at the end of it, I recommended a couple of different resources. And mostly that was just pointing to other what are considered beginning level investing in books. And I had people reach out to me and say, hey, checked out some of the books that you recommended. And to be honest, they're all still a little bit too complicated. Do you have anything else? And I thought, no, I'm going to write it because they're right. Most of these books are written in language that kind of assumes you have a base level understanding about investing. And we don't. We're not born with that kind of a knowledge. A lot of us are not raised in a house where that is a common conversation. I know when I first tried to open up a 401k, I immediately clicked out when it was asked for me to pick my investments because I had no idea what to do. And I was raised in a house where we talked about money. And that was Mm -hmm. never something that was part of the conversation. So this to me, this book, it just takes you back to the start and it tells you and explains the language that gets used. And it also addresses your emotions and it addresses the fear, because I think that that's another huge barrier for people, especially millennials, as we came out into the Great Recession. The older part of the generation was already out in the workforce when it was happening and were obviously significantly impacted. And the middle to younger end of the generation was either in college or high school and possibly seeing things fall apart around them. And so, of course, that's very scary for us. We kind of got burned before we even got started. So I think that that's another reason there's a huge intimidation factor. Mm -hmm. And then when you you know the facts that millennials now, especially our age, I'm a little bit older than you, but the new people graduating college, there is a lot of people saddled with debt, especially student loan debt. And that has become a barrier for a lot of people where it's like they can't even make their student loan payments or they can't even get jobs in their fields or jobs that they want. And so now to tackle on this thing of now I need to invest, like I'm just trying to live. I'm just trying to pay my living expenses. And so it does seem a little bit overwhelming, especially with the jargon that can be thrown around and used. I totally agree. And Part of the reason I wrote the book the way I did is it's very geared towards millennials. There's an entire chapter just dedicated to the concept of I have student loans. Should I be investing? And for me personally, I think part of what we need to do is also change the language we use around retirement because we always say save for retirement, but you're really investing for retirement. So a lot of people actually are investors, but don't even recognize that about themselves yet. And I think that that's a really important thing to get started because language is important. The words that we use have power. And so to start reframing in your mind that you are investing, if you have a 401k or a 403b or an IRA, is really critical. Mm -hmm. And even like you said, retirement, because when I graduated from college and I was told, oh, you can invest in your 401k and, you know, it's for your retirement. And I'm like, okay, retirement is when I'm like 65. That's like 40 years from now. Who cares? Right. So I think finding a way in which I, I hope that this platform helps people do is finding a way that retirement and saving for it and investing in general is not for the 60 year, year off goal. I mean, that's the ultimate plan. You want to make sure that you're set, but I want to reframe it in a way where, and this is what the kind of like the fire movement does is that we are talking about saving and investing for freedom. Now, 
depending on how aggressive you can get or how your goals are set, that freedom can be 10, 15, 20 years from now. It can be a freedom where it just allows you to leave your current job because it's not your passion or it's just the option to walk away from your job. But the fact of the matter is, I think when we frame it as retirement, that's why so many people just like click off and sign off because they're just like, who cares about that person 60 years from now when I'm just trying to live my life today? And I have silly ways that you can work to reframe that in your own mind as well. This might have been addressed before, but the first one is to go download an app or just use an online resource that ages your photo. So there's one that's called just aging booth that you can download on your phone. You upload a picture of yourself and it will age that picture to what you would roughly look like at like 65, 70 years old. It's sort of terrifying to see because I feel like they just give everybody jowls. Like that's just all the picture does is it droops your face way down. But part of the reason you do this is because studies have shown if you see an aged photo of yourself, you're more likely to connect with the future version of yourself. And so it helps you kind of reframe like, hey, this is the person that I am preparing for and I'm trying to protect and I'm trying to make sure that you have a good life. Now, I actually had somebody reach out to me one time. I talked about this on Instagram. And she reached out and she said, you know, I, I used the app and I really was kind of horrified by the look of my aged photo. So what I decided to do was print out a picture of myself at my happiest and I put it near my desk. And it's just a constant reminder of I want to be able to always be that happy. And finances plays a big role in being able to give myself the flexibility to pursue that kind of happiness, which I thought was a really lovely thought. And my third idea, and this is a much more practical, actionable step. As for a lot of us, especially because people will throw out big numbers like save 10%, save 15%, save 50% for retirement. And that just sounds untenable to a lot of folks. Start with 1%, especially if you get an employer match. The advice is always to try to save to the amount that you get an employer match, which is, of course, great advice. But even that for some people is not an option because of their budget. So start with a percent. And then every three to six months, try to push it up by another percent. And this very slow incremental journey towards your goal, first of all, you barely feel it in your paycheck. So it's an easy way to get there. And second of all, it's just those tiny actionable steps that keeps pushing you towards the greater goal. Mm-hmm. And I love that those are some just actionable tips. Anyone could be like, all right, let me see how this would affect me. Another thing as you were talking, I'm just like, you know, it'd be good because we all like seeing numbers. And this is actually what really helped my husband get on board in terms of when I said, let's think about the kind of life we want to have and in the future. And if we aggressively start investing is the numbers part of it. It's like to find that online calculator that's going to show you, okay, if I do nothing, if I just like keep doing what I'm doing now, where, what would I have accumulated in 10, 15, 20 years, right? You can pick different baselines and points versus if I do a little bit more, right? So if I invest like that 1% more, that 5% more, that a couple hundred dollars more, if I kept doing that for 10, 15, 20 years, how much would I have then? And then compare the endpoints and, you know, the numbers. And I found that to be highly motivating because when I showed my husband, like, we can have multi-million dollars in our account, depending on how aggressive we want to get. Like, how does that feel versus if we do what we're doing now and we have not even half of that, you know, and we still find a way to live good today. Like, so, and let's talk about that. And that really got him excited and got me excited. And it's really what helped to push us along the journey. 100% agree. I actually love at investor.gov, which is a Securities and Exchange Commission website. So it's backed by the SEC. They have a compound interest calculator that's my absolute favorite of all of the ones that are out there. And there are times that I just geek out over 
putting in what our current net worth is, playing around with different numbers, seeing what will happen if we go, you know, from just X amount to what if we added like another $500 a month, if we can swing that, what is that going to look like? How much faster does that get us to our goals? And it's also motivational to look at debt repayment calculators. My husband has student loans, so we've been working on trying to pay those off pretty aggressively and just looking at the difference between like, hey, if we actually reallocated some money from these other goals towards paying off the student loans, how much faster can we be out of debt? Mm -hmm. And what you just said, like the compounding interest, that's the magic of how your money grows. It's like your interest makes interest and the more time you have, the better. That's one of the things I want to talk about more, like a little bit of the technical stuff about investing and the importance of the compound interest, inflation and time. And so why it's better, because some people are like, oh, I have all this money saved in a savings account, like a traditional savings account that earns like 0.001%, not realizing that that money is eroding over time if they do nothing with it because of inflation and you just what you could, your buying power decreases versus investing it and not even having to invest it aggressively. But just even if it's like an online savings account or a money market account, something where it's earning you more interest it will get you so much further. So let's can we dig a little bit into like the importance of investing because of the compound interest, inflation and time? Yes. And I will start with a quote that I was given when I was interviewing for the book. And this is something I think is important. I didn't mention it earlier. I am not an investing expert. I don't pretend to be one. I don't play one on TV. This is this book is written because I like to position myself as a translator of investing. And I went out and interviewed a lot of people who are much smarter, much more experienced than myself. But I figured out how to put all this information into a digestible package. And one of the women that I interviewed, Jill Schlesinger, who's CBS business analyst, CFP, and wrote the book, Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. She gave me this great quote that I absolutely loved. And it was, I'm slightly paraphrasing, but along the lines of, If investing just makes you nauseous, keeps you up at night, you just cannot stomach it, that's okay. But what you need to realize is that when you do invest, your money does some of the heavy lifting for you. When you don't, you're going to have to save a whole heck of a lot more money in order to reach your goals. And that's just such a great way to position it. Because everything you just mentioned about time, compound interest, being able to beat inflation... Those are critical pieces about why people invest. And inflation in general, we usually use the rule of thumb of about 2%, which right now the online savings banks have kind of heated up the competition. We're at a little over 2% of what you can get if you put your money into an online savings account. But you don't want your money being growing at inflation. You want to be beating inflation. And generally, and inflation also just for context, I don't feel like we've gotten into it yet essentially is saying this is your your purchasing power of your dollar changes over time. So that's why grandparents back in the 1950s could take out a family of four for a nice meal for five bucks. You can barely get like a whole meal at McDonald's these days for five dollars. That's largely due to inflation. The purchasing power of a dollar changes over time. So your million dollars today is not going to get you the same amount of consumer goods as it will when you retire in 20, 30, 40 years. So it's important that you're growing your money in order to not only keep up with inflation, but to beat it. Now, time, as you also mentioned, is one of your biggest factors. And time and time again in the book, when I ask people what are biggest mistakes investors make, the number one response is they don't start early enough. And the reason it's important to start early 
even if it feels like an almost inconsequential amount that you're putting into a retirement account, the reason you want to be starting early is because you have the advantage of time and your money is then compounding and working harder and faster for you. And I think a great way to look at this, and there are a variety of examples online that you can look up and calculators that you can use. But typically, if you started putting money away at 25, then let's just say that you started putting about 300 bucks away at 25 every month. If somebody waited until 35 and decides to double down and put $600 away, they still might not catch up to the 25-year-old who through the entire course of their investing career just puts $300 aside every month. Now, I'm not saying to never increase how much you're investing. You definitely should as you're able to. But it's hard to play catch up, even if you double down how much money you're putting in every single month. And finally, on this point, I think a very common misconception is that in the future, you're going to be able to put more money into the market. And I think that the reason we need to bust up that myth is because life tends to just get more complicated. (laughs) And I don't mean that as a negative, but I do say, look at yourself at 21 or 22 and think about yourself at 32 for those of you who've already gotten there. Maybe you got married, maybe you bought a house, maybe you had a kid or more. Those are expensive things. And so while you might make more money and maybe even make substantially more money, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a significantly higher amount of discretionary income or money that you can put into investments. So that's why it's important to start building the habit early and also to be starting early to take advantage of that time and take advantage of that compound interest. Right. I'm so glad you brought up that point of the 25-year-old investing versus the 35-year-old and how different the outcome can be just depending on the start time. But I also want to make sure because I do have some older listeners or people my age, like I'm 36, right? So like I'm an older millennial, but there are some people who are just getting on like the train. But so when we talk about investing early, it doesn't mean that if you're in your 30s or even 40s or even 50s, I have some older listeners, that doesn't mean I should do nothing, right? Like doesn't mean bury your head in the sand because it's too late. You might have had a late start, but starting is better than not starting at all. Even if it's a couple hundred dollars, even if it's, you know, getting smart about paying off that debt as fast as you can, because either way, the the time it's going to happen. Just because you don't do anything doesn't mean like in 10 years from now, like things are just going to magically get better. So it's better to start no matter what age you are than not. It is so true. And I didn't give the 2535 example to be demoralizing to anyone, but to simply point out that time is your biggest asset. And again, it doesn't matter where you are today. Starting today is better than starting next week. So I think that that's a hugely important thing to be considering is that, yeah, if you haven't started or maybe you feel like you're getting a late start, sometimes you can just kind of want to throw your hands in the air and say like, oh, well, what does it matter? I didn't start early enough. And no, you you are absolutely right. If you just start today, Trust me, future you will be so much happier about it. Right. And even comparing, like there's someone, even no matter how old you are, there's someone who's older than you that hasn't started. And it's the same kind of effect where they wish they were at least your age and starting, you know, like it's always like in perspective, like you're always in a position to be grateful for because one, you now have the awareness of it. And once you have that awareness, now you hopefully by listening to this podcast and reading Erin's book and getting into more resources, you take action. All right. One of the things you brought up, which I think is super important because I get this question a lot, is that people say they want to invest and then they don't even realize that they're already investing if they have a 401k or that 
they can open up a Roth and actually have more flexibility in investing. Because I think it's more like, oh, I want to like open up a brokerage account, which is cool. And we can talk about the taxable investing side of things also. But I want people to understand the advantage of investing in their tax advantage retirement accounts. So that's that 401k, the 403b, the Roth IRA. Let's talk a little bit why that is definitely investing. And you should like take those routes first for the tax advantage loopholes that you get. So you just nailed it. The tax advantage loopholes are a big reason to start. And the other reason is if you have an employer match. So if your company is putting in a certain amount of money because you do too, that's free money on the table. So don't walk away from that. Make sure that you're at least getting that amount. The only thing that's a little bit tricky in this conversation is that there are kind of two schools of thought. And it's should you just only focus on your tax advantaged accounts? When I say that, I mean retirement, 401k, 403b, IRA, or do you split and do some that are retirement, some that are taxable accounts? Because I've got to tell you, it's in 2019, maxing out a 401k is $19,000. That's a lot of money to be putting away. And so most people are not maxing it out. Maxing out being the term for when you put all $19,000 in there in a year. So yeah, Honestly, taxable accounts are a little bit sexier. They're a little bit more fun. I think people like to think about those over thinking about retirement accounts. What you need to be focusing on when you're building your investment plan and your portfolio is what are your goals? That's the first step in this entire conversation is writing down and having really prescriptive goals for yourself. And with those goals, you then figure out your time horizon, which is just a fancy way of saying when you want to have access to your money. So when are you going to be needing to use the money that you're about to invest? Because that dictates everything. That dictates how much risk you put on your money, the kind of investments that you're going to pick. So for somebody who is, let's say, in their 30s now and wants to retire at 65, well, you can put a little bit more risk on your money than you could if you were 45 or 55 and getting a bit closer to retirement. So it does change the game a little bit. Now, I don't think that there's a definitive right and wrong answer. Some experts will say completely focus on your tax advantaged accounts, put money in there. My kind of rebuttal to that would be also think about when you need access to this money. If it's money that you're going to be using in 15 years as opposed to 35 or 40 years, well, maybe you still want to be investing that money in order to make it grow and compound to your advantage for at least the first five to seven years before you need access to it. So it is okay to be investing in taxable accounts for those medium to long-term, but not retirement level, long-term financial goals. That's just my two cents. Everybody's a little bit different. Yeah, no, I like that. And it's important to note too, because I have a lot of listeners who, whether they want to quote unquote, retire from their corporate job, you know, pursue a passion, just do something different. This concept of investing and, you know, accumulating a million dollars or whatever it is that they need is very ideal, right? But when we talk about being realistic and living life today and still enjoying life and seeing your dreams through, like you're talking about your goals, it's important to like invest in buckets like you're talking about. So understanding that there's that long-term investing, okay, how are you going to pay for the life, your life in the future when you're not actively working? You know, like when you're 65, 75 and you don't want to travel every day into a job, you want to live off your investments. But then for someone who wants to like quit their job, have a career change, travel the world a bit, you're going to have to think about how you can access the money you're investing. So like you said, it's important to look at your goals and then all the uh, advantages to each account. 
And so something like the taxable investing, you can access right away, but you don't get any tax advantages for that versus if maybe a business. So sometimes I think people talk about entrepreneurship or side hustles or whatever you want to call it. That is a form of investing. I mean, it's more active. It's not as passive as investing in the markets, but that's one of the ways in which I find people who are investing for like early retirement or this financial independence goal. A lot of them are investing in a business. So where that, if they are making that transition, they're looking to like get quote unquote, I hate saying the word passive when it comes to like a business because it's not that passive, but they're finding ways in which to supplement their investment income through other streams of work. So whether that is their entrepreneurship goals, it can be real estate investing even. I think it's just important that to know that there are a lot of ways to invest. I mean, for your book, I know we're talking strictly about investing in the market, but it's like one of many ways to build your portfolio. And I also, to that point, think that it's important no matter what your job is, to figure out how you can have more than one stream of income. Because to me, that's one of the most vulnerable positions to be in, is if all your money is just tied up in one thing. Because if you lose that thing, so if you lose your job, and there's no other way to easily start pivoting to making more money, that's an incredibly vulnerable position to be putting yourself and your financial life in. So that's one thing that I love about the side hustle, entrepreneurship, whatever route. It doesn't mean that you aren't working a regular job, but if you can also have another way to be supplementing your income, and that could be investing on the side, it could be that you're investing, I'm not talking individual stock picking, but that could just be another way to consider like, hey, I'm diversifying my streams of income. It's not just my company that's paying me a paycheck, I'm also investing, and that's earning me money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're going to like now talk about something that a lot of people have questions about, and that's investing with student loan debt. Since so many people have it still, I'm lucky enough to have had paid off my student loan debt. My husband has paid his off, but not too many people have that situation and they're still working on that. And it's always that struggle of, hmm, so I have this extra $200 a month, let's just say, right? After they do their little budget or their financial plan, what do I do? Do I invest or do I pay off my student loan debt or credit card debt? So what do you say? I say this is a very nuanced question, so (laughs) buckle up because there isn't really a cut and dry answer. And you just mentioned that you paid off your debt, your husband paid off his debt. And I said at the very beginning of this that I didn't have student loan debt, but joke's on me because I married into it. So I am still now having to make that decision. And to kind of bring a personal perspective to this, When my husband and I were just in kind of our, how are we going to really merge our financial lives post-marriage conversation, it was interesting because I realized, oh, should I continue to be investing outside of retirement or should every extra dollar just go towards getting rid of his student loans? And you have to do the math. That's really the basic end all be all of this conversation is you have to actually run the numbers. Now, I'm going to give you some guidelines on that, though. First of all, You also mentioned credit card debt. Let me just say right now, if you have credit card debt, get it out of here. You want to be aggressively paying that down. And the reason I say that is because I am betting that your credit card debt is carrying between a 15 to 30% interest rate. You are probably not going to average that out in the market. Rule of thumb, we often use 7% as an average annual return of the stock market. So if you're paying 15% on your credit cards, then you're losing money. So it certainly makes more sense to aggressively pay off high interest rate debt like consumer debt. There is some nuance of that. And this is one caveat through this entire conversation. Still take advantage of any employer matched 401k. 
unless it means that you don't have enough money to be paying all of your bills or putting money towards your debt, if you have access to an employer match on a 401k or 403b, please take advantage at least up to that match. So let's say your employer says, we will give you 4%. If you put 4% into your 401k, then do it. That's the through line of everything I'm about to say. Retirement is kind of a separate bucket in this conversation. We're thinking more about should you be investing in taxable accounts while you're paying off your debt? So credit cards, we want to get rid of those, we want to get rid of that debt. Now, when it comes to student loans, especially because a lot of us are paying on these student loans for 10, 20, 25 years. And as we've already assessed, if you wait that long, you're kind of putting yourself behind the eight ball a little bit. So instead, again, be putting your money into retirement and then you have to do the math. I asked every investing expert I interviewed for the book, what was the magic number for student loans? When should you be investing? When should you not? And almost every single person gave the same answer of 5%. That meaning that if your interest rate is above 5%, it makes more sense for you to be putting extra money towards paying down your student loans. If your interest rate is below 5%, well, okay, you could kind of dabble in investing in addition to paying off your student loans and mathematically, it will probably work out in your favor. But here's the big catch. What is your risk tolerance and what is your debt tolerance? Because going back to that quote that I said in the beginning, yes, investing has does some of the heavy lifting for you, but is it keeping you up at night that you have debt? Is it keeping you up at night that you're putting some risk on your money and investing when you're paying off these student loans? And if the answer is yes, there's nothing wrong with aggressively paying down those student loans and trying to get debt-free ASAP because no one ever regretted paying off their debt and getting out of their student loans. I'm going to just say it one more time though, the exception being still be putting money into your retirement accounts. That was a lot of great points. Like you said, it's very nuanced. You know, everyone's situation is different because everyone has a different feeling about their debt. I was on Twitter and I saw someone say that they had enough money in their savings account to pay off their student loan debt, but they just are refusing to do it. It's almost like they felt like paying off the student loan debt in full. I don't know if they thought it was a college or like the creditors, like it would like have them win and like they're going to get this money over time because I like the feeling that I see when I open up my account and see this lump sum versus just putting it all towards debt. And so obviously this person, like they've made this conscious decision. I don't know if it's going to change over time that they rather have that money in savings. And I'm hoping that it at least is an online savings account or that they plan to invest it. But for them, they're just like, you know what? I have the money, but I don't mind having this debt because I'd rather have this lump sum do something different or it provides me a better feeling than paying off the debt. And I think that's kind of a bit of a similar situation to people who, if they have access to a 0% auto loan, even if they have the money in the bank to pay for the car outright, a lot of people who are super geek out over numbers and investing will still take that 0% loan because that means the money can be working for them and building and investing in the market. And they just make their monthly payment until the interest rate on the loan goes up and then they just pay it off in full rate then and there. There are a lot of people who play that kind of a game. Ah, game's kind of a bad word to use, honestly. But there are a lot of people who do that, who are very fixated on the math and the numbers of it all. But there are also a lot of people who we are emotional creatures. Mm -hmm. And you really do need to take your own personal ability to relate to risk and debt into account when you're building out your portfolio. Because you don't want it to be putting your mental health through a beating just because you think, oh, well, if mathematically, it makes more sense to do this, even if it's not, if it's taking a toll on your emotional and mental health, 
you got to figure out how to find some more balance in there. Right, right. All right. So let's just say someone is managing their debt, right? They're on the path of aggressively paying off their credit cards or their other consumer debt, and they still have some student loan debt, but they're investing. And they decide that now that they have already invested in a 401k, that they want to open up a Roth IRA or they want to do taxable investments. What are the steps that someone now can get started on the, like the next level? So I guess I should clarify. So if someone's already investing in their 401k, they don't have any consumer debt. They still have some student loan debt, but now they want to take it to the next level and do taxable investing. What are some like options for them? You have a bunch and there's everything from do it yourself investing. You just go to a brokerage, open the account, put your money in the investments that you want. You could do a robo advisor or you could look at micro investing, which are the apps. So three different, or I mean, you could hire a professional too. So really four different options that you have at your disposal for how you can continue to level up your game. I would say a lot of people, especially people who are putting in bigger chunks of money and are taking it a really more hands-on approach, either go the do-it-yourself or the robo-advisor. And I want to talk a little bit about both of those things briefly, and I'm happy to touch on the apps as well if you'd like. But it's called a discount brokerage, which is a very unfortunate sounding term. It is not shady. It just sounds really shady when you talk about do-it-yourself investing. And a discount brokerage essentially just means you don't have the quote-unquote full service of a financial advisor who is helping build your portfolio, picking everything for you, but also taking a fee to do that. If you go to a discount brokerage, and that's like a Vanguard or a Fidelity would be two examples of a discount brokerage, then you're the one that is deciding, what do I want to be investing in? You're the one who goes in, usually on your computer, fills out the information about what you want to be investing in, and puts money into your different accounts. You do have access to talking to people at the discount brokerages. I don't want you to think that it's without access to humans. You definitely can speak to financial advisors. But at a full service firm, usually that's more wealth management. They typically take a fee called assets under management or AUM. It's often about 2% of your portfolio. If you're with a discount brokerage, it's a whole heck of a lot cheaper. But you are doing it yourself and kind of building it out on your own. Now, as robo-advisors... Again, talking about some misconceptions, it's not a robot handling everything for you. In fact, a couple of the people that I interviewed who work at RoboAdvisors said that they're kind of trying to change the language right now to online financial advisor. They think that that's more accurate because uh, one of them was telling me a story about how anytime the market kind of takes a dip, they'll get calls and emails. It's like, why aren't your algorithms and robots figuring out how to beat this? And they're like, that's not how <laughs> this works. <laughs> So right. there are algorithms involved, but normally those algorithms are searching for things like it's called tax loss harvesting, which is a kind of complicated way of making sure that you are getting the best bang for your buck because you might sell off something that's underperforming to buy something similar that's performing better and you can take kind of a tax break on that. It's a bit complicated to do as a DIY investor unless you're super geeky about this stuff. So that's where a robo advisor might come into play. A robo-advisor might rebalance your portfolio on a more regular basis to make sure that it's still aligned with whatever your original goals and risk tolerance was. And it's also kind of an easy way when you're getting started if you don't want to do necessarily all of the research involved of figuring out what funds you want to pick to build your portfolio yourself. It's a bit of a more 
passive way for you to be putting money in the market and making sure that it's invested in alignment with your goals, but you are going to pay more for it. It's going to cost you a little bit more to use a robo-advisor. And the thing about fees is every dollar that you pay in fees is a dollar less that's compounding for future you. Now, I'm not saying not to pay a fee and to take advantage of somebody who can help you, but I am saying whenever you pay a fee, whether that's an expense ratio on some sort of index fund or mutual fund, and an expense ratio is the amount that you are paying to your brokerage, essentially it's kind of an operational cost, or if that's a fee that you're paying just for using a service, you want to make sure that you're getting value. Everybody defines that value differently. You have to define it for yourself, depending on what you want as an investor. But that's a very important thing to be thinking through for your entire investing life. Mm-hmm. And so many things like to consider. And like you said, some people have just different levels of comfortability when it comes to their money. You can look at it different different ways. You can first say, okay, I want to DIY it myself until I get to a certain point to where now, because I know what I'm doing, I understand things a bit more. I don't mind handing it off to someone and then paying them to help, you know, for their expertise. Or you could be someone that says, you know what, I want someone to kind of handhold me to help me at first. So I'm, I'm willing to pay up front. And then perhaps later down the line, I feel now more comfortable to take the reins back. Again, it's more about what works for you. And that is really a through line of all of this is there's no one right definitive way to do things. You really do need to figure out what is right for you and your investing life and your journey. Another thing I also want to say about just getting started is one of the barriers you might run up against is this idea of a minimum initial investment. There are certain funds, and when I say funds, I mean an index fund or a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund, which is an ETF, which are different bundles of investments that you can be investing in. So it's not just picking a single stock. These are a grouping of lots and lots of stocks that are all put together, which automatically helps diversify you, which is a concept that we haven't really touched on yet, but is critical when it comes to investing because you want to make sure that your money is not just in one company or in one sector. It's the classic cliche of don't put all your eggs in one basket. That is really, really crucial when it comes to investing. You want to make sure that you have a lot of exposure so that if one company has a poor performance in a day or a week or a month or a year, that your whole portfolio is not just taking a brutal beating because of it. Just like the income, right? Like we mentioned before, it's all about diversifying. 100%. And to come back to this idea of minimum initial investment, sometimes what happens, and I'm just going to say the name of a real index fund. This is not me endorsing it or advocating you go put your money in it. I think it's just easier to use a name when you're in in an explanation. I always have to do these disclaimers when I talk about investing. Mm -hmm. But the S&P 500 index fund, for instance, let's say that you've decided That's the first fund that you want to buy in your portfolio now that you're opening up a taxable account. It also might be a fund you want in your retirement account. That's totally fine too. But let's say that that's the one you want to put your money in. And you have picked your brokerage that you want to use. So you know you want to go with brokerage A. You've done the research. They seem like a reputable company. You like that the fees are pretty low. And you go to open the account and you see that it says minimum initial investment, $3,000. What that means is that you need to have $3,000 just to open the account. But that's just a one-time thing. Moving forward, you can put no bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, whatever you want into it. But in order to just open it in the first place, you might need an initial lump sum of money. So that might dictate where you can open your first taxable account because all the brokerages are different. Not everyone has the same level on a minimum initial investment. So how much money you have up front to start might actually determine where you can go and give your business. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I know that is a deterrent for a lot of people when they're just looking at how much they need to start and they're just like, oh, wait, I need this much. You talked about like ETFs and then like these smaller companies that help you buy fractional shares. So I think that's just important to touch upon just to give people another route into getting started. So the micro investing apps, which you might have heard of before, things like Stash, Acorns, Robinhood, those are just a few examples. These guys, essentially what they're doing is saying, hey, we totally get it. You might not have a ton of money every single month to be putting into the market. You might not have a lump sum in order to go open a fund. So instead, we're going to make it possible for you to just put in a little bit of money every month and still be invested in the market. As you mentioned, fractional shares is the word. So very roundabout way to explain it is, let's say that you decide to buy $25 of a share, but the share is actually worth, uh, it sells at $100 a share. So you give $100 to, let's just call it App A. You give it to App A. App A actually goes out and buys the full share, the full $100, but you only own 25% of that share because you only put in $25. You as an investor yourself cannot just go right to the market and buy fractional shares. You have to buy a whole share. But these micro-investing apps and other platforms, they're the ones that buy the whole thing and then they kind of distribute it out amongst different people who are trying to get fractional ownership of it. Might sound kind of complicated. I apologize. It's basically all you need to really know is that you don't have to put in a whole ton of money in order to get access to investing. But there's a huge caveat on these guys. And that is Sometimes when people start with the micro investing, they take that micro part very literally and only put in a couple of dollars a month. You need to be putting in more than that. And the reason is because the apps charge you a fee. They should. They're not a non-for-profit. They need to be making money too. And the fee is quite reasonable. A lot of times it's around a dollar. And you might think, eh, I live in New York City. I don't know about you, dear listener, but for me, when I go to the laundromat, it costs more than a dollar for me to do a single load of laundry. So a dollar a month in order to be investing sounds like a pretty good deal. Problem is, if you are only putting in three or four dollars a month into this account and you've paid twelve dollars in the year in fees, it has eaten up all of your returns. So you've not actually gotten any returns from the stock market. So rule of thumb I like to give out you want to be putting in between at least $25 to $50 a month into these micro-investing apps to really be getting your money's worth on that fee, coming back to the idea of value. Mm-hmm. Good distinction there, um, because I know that that sometimes trips people up. It's like, oh, it's only a couple of dollars, I'm doing something, but you really need to look at the numbers. All right, so Erin, you know, I mean, there's so much more we can talk about. I know a lot of people are interested already, but it's more just like, here's another avenue for you to like deepen your understanding of investing. We can keep going, but we're not, you'll be able to like find more information in Erin's book, which I'm super excited because for you, if you're listening to this in real time, this podcast episode comes out on a third, but your book is officially going to be in the world next week. Again, if you're listening to this in real time. So can you tell everyone a little bit about the book, where they can get it? You said you had a couple bonuses for people if they were to purchase and where they can find you. I do. Well, first I'll just say where you can find me, brokemillennial.com. I'm on Instagram at brokemillennialblog and on Twitter at brokemillennial. I'm very active on both. So please come say hi, ask a question if you have a question, especially I, I know we got into some nitty gritty things today, but I promise it's explained much more thoroughly and easily in the book, which you can also put down and open back up at your leisure. The book, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money, is available on shelves nationwide on April 9th. 
You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, Indie Books, hopefully your local bookstore, also possibly your library. And if it's not there, please request it. I always love when people can get some free access to this kind of knowledge. And I do have a bonus offer for you. If you buy a copy of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, please email info at brokemillennial.com. I will make sure all that info is in the show notes for you. Sometimes people do get tripped up on Millennial. It has two L's, two N's. I always have to say that. But if you email proof of purchase to info at brokemillennial.com, I will send you back a free 30-day rookie investor action plan. And what this is, is every single day I've come up with just a very small actionable step you can take to make yourself a more confident investor. So at the end of a month, you're just in an overall better place in order to start investing and taking that control. Like Erin said, we're going to make sure that this is an episode show notes for you guys to follow through. Erin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Finally, glad to have you um, here and teaching us more about investing. Well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. And your show's so great. It was an honor to be here today. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Erin. As you can see, Erin is on a mission to really make what once was just jargon. A lot of people just didn't understand or maybe you still don't understand something that we can relate to, something that we can comprehend so we can act, so we can level up our money. So thanks, Erin, again for coming on the show. And as we mentioned, and as Erin mentioned, her book, her new book is coming out next week if you're listening to this in real time. So it comes out on April 9th. And I do have special treats for journeyers. So I have two books to give away and two in-person tickets to her kickoff event in New York City. So Erin is having a kickoff event for her book on Wednesday, April 10th. And I have two tickets for you to come meet me, to meet Erin, and to get some goodies at the event. So you also get a book at the event and some conversation around investing. So this is an awesome, awesome giveaway and want you to be able to join. So if you want to be able to get a chance to win, go to journeytolaunch.com slash win. There you will see how you can enter. You must be on my email list, but when you go to journeytolaunch.com slash win, you'll see how to do that. And also follow me on social media because I'll be sharing how you can win the in-person tickets and copies of the book. So for the in-person tickets, I'm gonna select those winners by the end of the week so that you have enough time if you win to come join me next week. And for the book, I'm gonna select winners by next week. So you have about a week from this podcast releasing. Again, this is all if you're listening to this in real time. Go to journeytolaunch.com slash win to see how you can win. And also follow me on social media at Journey to Launch, particularly on Instagram. That's where I like to hang out the most. And I'll share how you can win the book and or tickets to the event. You can only win one or the other. And Launch Club members. So if you're a member of the Launch Club, you're going to have an opportunity to win also. So if you're in Launch Club, just meet me over there. I'll tell you how. If you want any of the episode show notes for this episode, you can go to Journey to Launch dot com slash episode 91. Now let me read a review of the week from a journeyer that left a review on Apple podcast. So Medusa me says this really helps recent grads. I have been listening to this podcast on and off for the last six months and it has been such an empowering space. I came feeling very anxious about my finances since graduating and the podcast taught me to be more patient and gracious with myself. And for that, I am very thankful. I am so happy that Medusa, this is allowing you to do that. And I hope that this podcast and this content allows you 
to also, if you're listening, feel like you're on track. Like it's okay. You don't have to have everything figured out. You, we're figuring this out together and this is a journey. So I'm so happy that you're enjoying the episodes and the content that I'm putting out. If you'd like to leave a review, just go to Apple Podcasts. And again, you don't have to listen to Apple Podcasts to show your love. Just share this with family and friends. As you know, I really, really appreciate when you do that. Once again, I wanted to remind you that Doors to the Launch Club, my membership community for journeyers who are really looking for that support, the resources and the tools they need to take their money and their lives to the next level. The doors are closing end of day, April 4th. And so you do still have a few more hours to get in, um, depending on when you listen to this. And I'd love to see you on the inside. Check out journeytolaunch.com slash launch club for more and to join us. All right, journeyers, until next week. Keep on journeying.